This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Just four years ago, Rachel Simon and two friends started a company called Seed and Mill, which specializes in artisanal halva, tahina, and even tahina ice cream. Rachel shares this extraordinary story about turning a passion into a thriving women-owned brick-and-mortar business and a successful online business, too. It is the only company in the entire country solely dedicated to sesame seeds and products made from them. Coming up, you'll hear what it's like to start a business from scratch as a mom and as an immigrant. How Rachel's career as a lawyer, working in Tel Aviv, London, and Hong Kong, led to her working in food in New York. You'll hear about Rachel's perspective about the peaks and valleys of a startup business and a powerful statement made by makeup maven Bobby Brown about the health benefits of tahini. Plus, an on-mic halva tasting. This is Rachel's powerful and yummy story. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves, each of us in our own way is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Rachel Simons, I am so excited to be with you today. Welcome to my kitchen. Thank you so much, Roseanne. I think the fact that food and the interest in food is at an all-time high makes it especially fabulous for you to be here. Because in a very short period of time, I believe it's only four years, you have created something so unique, so exciting in the food space. And it almost seems impossible that you were able to achieve this. (laughs) So Rachel, you are the owner, creator, founder of a company unique in America called Seed and Mill. And I believe it is the only company that actually specializes in tahini and halva, products that are based on the sesame seed. That's right. Wow. (laughs) So welcome. I love these two foods very much. And I want to hear everything, the very, very beginning of your, your journey. Thanks, Roseanne. I mean, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. And we're sitting here in Chelsea, which is both the history of where Cedar Mill started. We started in Chelsea Market. I don't sound like I was born in Chelsea. I was born in Australia, <laughs> but I actually live in this neighborhood as well. And it's it's really a privilege to be here with you today. This company, I understand that you started with uh, two friends, but you came from a completely different life. And Rachel, in many ways, that's really what this show is about. So so many women are interested in being in the food world and don't quite know how. Once upon a time, you know, you were a chef or a cookbook author, but now I really believe that women are so incredibly uh, entrepreneurial and creative and innovative. So how did the idea for Seed and Mill come about? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really great point. And I I have a lot to share about how the business started and also the experience of being an immigrant uh, to a new country and also being an older woman making a career change because my history and my professional background was not in food at all. And so the experience of starting Cedar Mill in my late 30s and I'm now in my early 40s and uh, that journey and the experience of you know changing your career at a certain point has been both exciting, challenging, um, rewarding, you know, all of the above. So really excited to share that story. Well, so. I think it'll be fun to back up a little bit. What yeah. was your career? What did you think you were going to do for the rest of your life? Yeah, I mean, and that, yeah, I'll start, I'll start with that. And, and it does obviously get to where Cedar Mill started. But so as you can hear, I'm a Sydney born Australian. A fabulous um, <laughs> city. I've been several times. <laughs> Australia is an amazing food destination as yes, well. It is. It's just a long way away from New York, which is a shame. Um, but so I was born in Sydney, but I have, I think food has just been an incredibly defining part of my family experience, my relationship with my mother, my relationship now with my kids is so, is so defined around food. 
Um, I grew up as a little girl always cooking. Um, I, I have memories of being, you know, a six, seven, eight-year-old girl um, trying to create my own recipes and just tipping in cocoa and sugar and butter into bowls and just trying <laughs> to create food. Um, I, you know, and I guess it was before the days where kids would just sit on phones, you know, I've now got an 11 and a 13 year old. So I, I live in this world of screens and, and I, I try to direct my kids back to bowls. creative, well, to bowls. <laughs> you know, I try to create, I try to direct them back to at that creative um, nourishing experience of food, but and it really is a poignant memory for me to remember with my girlfriends as you know, as a young person, we would just sit there feeding our souls and feeding our stomachs and feeding our creativity all around food. That, that is so lovely. Um, it feels like a very kind of female thing um, because that usually is nurtured by our mothers. Yeah. And is that, in fact, what you saw in your kitchen at home? Yeah, absolutely. Just I mean, a lot of joy and love around the food cooking yeah, process. Always. You know, my mom was an exceptional cook. She. Where was she from? She, what, what kinds of things did she make? Um I mean, that's also a great story and another kind of defining part of who I am in food. So just a little bit about my family history. So my grandparents were Czechoslovakian. Uh, they left uh, Prague in, uh, they were survivors of the Holocaust. So they left in 1945 and they moved to Zimbabwe. Hmm. So my mum was born in Bulawayo in Zimbabwe. It was then Rhodesia. And they had a really typical Eastern European home or, you know, Czechoslovakian food-driven home where, but they were also in a foreign country, foreign language, foreign culture, but they really held on to some of their memories and tradition through food. Um, my mum talks all the time about the food that she cooked with her mother. Um, I sadly didn't have a close relationship with my grandmother because I you know, she stayed all her life in Bulawayo. But my mum moved to London uh, as an 18-year-old uh, to study. She met my dad in London. My dad convinced her to move to Sydney. I was born in Sydney. <laughs> this is a long and winding story, but there is, I a, love it. There is a point here. <laughs> I will say, you know, I was born in Sydney, but in 94, I moved to Israel as an 18-year-old. So I lived in Israel for a year then I then moved back to finish my studies. I then I was I studied as a lawyer, so can talk about that. But I trained as a lawyer and I worked as a lawyer for uh, about eighteen years before I moved here. But I then moved to London for a couple of years. I worked in London. Then I moved back to Sydney. Then always my, as a lawyer. I was working as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. My the law firm that I was working for sent me to Hong Kong for a year. <laughs> So I lived in Hong Kong for a year and that was in 2002. Then I moved back to Sydney, had kids and sort of progressed my career a bit further and then I moved to New York almost six years ago. So when I think about the travel um, and I, it, this really does connect me to my love of food and the experience of my, my grandparents, my mum, myself, now my kids, you know, we're all travellers. And we've immersed ourselves in different countries, different cultures, but food is really a connecting source of nourishment and love. And my home may have been in many, many different geographic locations, but I've always uh, really experienced the country that I've lived in through food and welcomed strangers and made new friends by cooking for them. And, you know, even in New York here, I remember the month we moved here, I was already trying to invite, make new friends by inviting them into my kitchen and cooking for them. So that's a very, that's a very long story, Roseanne, but what I really think says that, what that says about me and what I love about food is just how it builds bridges and connects people um, and really nourishes you know, relationships. I'm just sitting here with a big smile on my face listening yeah. to this. It's a very beautiful, very dreamy story in some ways. And your use of the word that we're all travelers, you know, right now we're all saying that we're foodies, but there's something even so much more sweeping and encompassing about this idea that we're all travelers. So thank you for that. I really love it. Yeah. Um, I want to know specifically, though, because mm -hmm. I'm so intrigued, mm -hmm. what was it that your mother was cooking with her mother? What were some of those recipes and smells and tastes? 
yeah, very European. So she talks a lot about making cakes. They had a sweet tooth. They were often having tea cakes. My mum talks about this <laughs> Czechoslovakian cake called Dobosh cake, which has lots of layers and a chocolate cream through it. Um, she used to cook with a lot of cherries. Cherries were really seasonal in Czechoslovakia. And I, I recently did some... Um, uh, chatted to the uh, Jewish Food Society about this. They said, you know, will you share your schnitzel recipe? And I was like, oh, schnitzel, who cares about schnitzel? It wasn't a very exciting recipe to me. And then all of a sudden I remembered that I never really ate just schnitzel. We always had schnitzel with cherry sauce. Um, oh and we would make this sort of cherry sauce that always went with schnitzel. And it sort of, it just, again, felt like such a mishmash of cultures, <laughs> but it was that was really normal to me. And when I had said to them, hey, let's do schnitzel with cherry sauce, they looked at me with eyebrows raised, but that's what we used to eat. <laughs> this was the Jewish Food Society, yeah. Naama Sheffi. Yeah. I'm on their list. I yeah. love getting their recipes. I try to go to as many events as I can. Yeah. And Rachel, I had no idea that that schnitzel recipe with cherry sauce was you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. So thank you for that. I'm smelling and hearing the cooking in, in your childhood kitchen. So, okay. This is an amazing prelude to where we are right now, which yeah. is you are the founder, director, owner of the company in America that makes uh, Chava and Tahini. Yeah. But I do want to ask you one thing about the pronunciation of that. Of course. I have been to Israel many times, and I don't know why I came up with saying it this way, but I always say, and even in my own cookbooks, I say Tahina with an A at the end. And people say, what is that? And I say, well, that's the same as tahini. But what is, is one Arabic and one is Jewish or am I mixing my pronunciation up? No, not at all. I, lo I love that you've asked me this question because that, that, that is another whole story. So the word tahina is a Hebrew word. I think it's been anglicized to tahini here in the U.S., but the origin of the word, it comes from an Arabic word called tahana. That's mm. the history of the word. So T-A-H-A-N-A. -A -A, and that means in Arabic to grind. So t the history of tahini is that people were grind thousands, thousands of years ago, they were grinding on stone mills, the sesame seeds. And, and so that mechanism of grinding something is how the word tahana became tahini. Tahina and then Tahini, you know. And interestingly, you know, as we've tried to introduce uh, Tahini, Tahina to um, a new audience and, a, and you know, people here in the US are not always that familiar with what we what it is that we sell. And occasionally I debate, should we change the name to Sesame Butter or Sesame Paste? Or, you know, I occasionally I think about making the product more accessible and familiar by using other names. But no matter how many times, you know, a marketing person will say, you know, you should call it sesame butter and then people might buy it more. I, I just don't think I could ever do that. I would never want to take away the history um, and the cultural origin of the product. So, you know, I'm never going to say never, but I really hope that Seed and Mill stays true to the history of the product by continuing to call it at Tahini Tahina. I really believe that is the absolute right decision. And... Um... People are very adaptable. You know, once upon a time, hummus was not a ubiquitous American food. It's the new pizza, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. yes, it's true that Americans kind of say it many different ways. And I believe what's the most popular pronunciation now is like hummus, uh, which makes me laugh. But um, <laughs> me too. But I believe if that was possible, and tahini in some ways really is following on the coattails of hummus and that familiarity and and that love of that product. Yeah. So I really believe you should stick with tahini. Me too. Uh, tell us how you make it and what it really is and how it's used. And I have seen it made in one little shop in the old city in Jerusalem. I've never seen halva made. So I would love to hear about the process of both. And you make both of these in your store in the Chelsea Market. So we we have some mills at Chelsea Market. So we import Ethiopian sesame seeds and we grind some of the sesame fresh to order and we use that 
tahini to um, drizzle over ice cream and we put it in our ice cream. We sell a tahini ice cream as well. I've heard about that. So it's a t- tahini soft serve. Exactly. That sounds so fabulous. It's so it is really. I, I'm going to confess that I've eaten so much halva in my lifetime. I'm sort of winding back on the halva, but the ice cream. <laughs> I, could, I, could stand, I could stand there every day eating my own ice cream. <laughs> I love it. So, yeah, so we do make some of the tahini in the store in Chelsea Market. But it's a it's a pretty small, very confined space. So uh, the majority of the tahini and halva that we make, we actually make it offsite in a in a factory. Um, you know, there just isn't the space in Chelsea Market to be making it at that sort of scale. Well, after three or four years, the demand is so high, Rachel, and I'm yes. going to share this with you. My uh, best friend's birthday is January second, and I she loves halva so much. In fact, even tried making it at home. And so my gift to her was one of your sample gift packs, and she lives in Arizona now. And I called to order it, and you were out of product because it was around the holidays. I know. And I, you know, really smiled. Anyway, she still got it in time. (laughs) She was so excited. It was like the best gift she ever got. Wow. Yeah, we love to give the gift of sesame. Um, yeah, so I mean, just I, I might just take one step back and actually talk a little bit about the history of the business, and you know, really want to give um, some credit to my co-founders. So even though I'm now running the business on my own, my two co-founders uh, were really instrumental in starting the business and having the vision for this opportunity. So um, really, would like to take a moment and re- and recognize them, and also really give a lot of credit to one of my co-founders, Lisa, who really convinced me that this was the right time for me to make that move away from being a lawyer and to pursuing my career and my love of food. So taking a step back, I met Lisa um, and Monica when I moved here six years ago. Lisa has young kids who go to the same school as my kids. We became fast friends. And again, it was over food. We met and I immediately invited her and her family over for (laughs) dinner. And, you know, we became great friends. And I was at the time thinking about what I would want to do here. I just moved. I knew that I could have started a legal career here if I wanted to, but it it just wasn't my passion. And I was at that point thinking, all right, I'm in my late thirties. I could do something else. Now's that opportunity to make a change. And I, and I think I was, oh, well, I know I was studying at NYU for a little while. I was considering uh, a career in executive coaching because my legal career had been as an HR lawyer. So I had a lot of HR experience and I thought that was a good, you know, change. And I'll never forget, I was walking through New York one afternoon and I was chatting to Lisa and I said, I'm I'm doing this course and I'm thinking about executive coaching. And I remember her looking at me with absolute bafflement. And she's like, why, why are you doing that? That is not, you need to work in food. And I was like, yeah, I know I do love food, but you know, I just don't have any career experience. I, I wouldn't even know where to start. And she's like, I'm sorry. This is ridiculous conversation. If you don't, if you don't find a career in food, I'm gonna, you know, blah blah blah. And it was just this really defining conversation for me to think: Why would I do anything but find a career and an opportunity to pursue a food business? Rachel, that is perfect. When we come back, we will hear about your guardian angel, Lisa, <laughs> who insisted that you take this new step in your life. Here's a cooking tip to share. This one from my guest, Rachel Simon. My tip is when you're entertaining, not to worry so much about the perfection of the food because somebody once told me, and it was very true, is that people, when they dine and sit around your table, they're not going to really remember was the food spectacular or not. They're going to remember the conversation. They're going to remember that feeling and the experience of being in your home. So I've learned that, yes, the food is important and I do put a lot of effort and thought into what I'm going to make. But I've learned to make sure that the guests and the conversation and the intimacy that I have around my table is far more important than what they're actually eating. From Rachel's kitchen to yours, give it a try and pass it along. So here we are walking down the streets of New York with Lisa, and she's convincing you to change your career path and to go into the food world. But obviously, she must have had an idea about 
what to do. Yes. So Lisa's Israeli and she had also only moved to New York recently. And interestingly enough, she's also a former lawyer. (laughs) Very interesting. Um, But she had grown up uh, with products like tahini and halva in her kitchen grocery. You know, they are, you know, everywhere. Those sorts of products are everywhere in the Middle East. And she arrived here and, and saw an opportunity to bring those products that were very familiar to her here to New York. But for us to do something very different with them. And, you know, she convinced me that there was an opportunity to do something in this space. And I really just sort of joined with her vision. But it was it was certainly at the time that we were having this conversation back in 2015, it was almost really just the seed or the kernel of an idea. <laughs> I don't think either she, Monica, or I had any idea where Cedar Mill could go and where it has, in fact, grown, which is an interesting story in itself around community building and consumer education, which we can talk about. But so so the business really started with a conversation in 2015. We decided to open a store in Chelsea Market. And at this point, it's you, Lisa, and Monica. And who is Monica? So Monica um, is also a New York mum. Uh, not a lawyer. Not a lawyer, but not, but also not a food professional. So she had a background in marketing and sort of real estate consulting. But what really connected all three of us is we just loved to cook. We loved to talk about food. We loved to eat. We loved to nourish. And so all three of us just wanted to pursue a, a, a career in something that we knew we were passionate about. And so off we went. And with the three of us really didn't have any true experience in growing a CPG food brand and we've learned well everything we've learned it's been learned on the job it's been learned through tears I can imagine <laughs> joy um, but and what been, is CPG sorry CPG stands for consumer packaged goods oh, so okay. launching a food brand that has both a, a brick and mortar anchor so Chelsea Mar- Chelsea market where we sell to people face-to-face is really the start and the anchor of the business. But where we would like to go is to use that platform to now take the products into other stores. So we sell into Whole Foods and we would like to grow that part of our business so that more people can try our products and they can find them. If they're not in Chelsea Market, they don't have to schlep into the city or buy it online. They can go to their local Whole Foods or Union Market or wherever they happen to be. So growing a consumer packaged product across the U.S. would be our big ambition. And the idea was to make tahini from scratch. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many different kinds you have. Uh, we we started with three, and right now we've got two, and we'll we'll probably play with that at the moment. We we also have the halva, and we have the ice cream, so we didn't want to have too many skews or you know, <laughs> product items. Yes, tell us about halva. It is an acquired taste, and I think it's not so much the taste, but it has such a such a fascinating texture. So, how does one make halva, and how is it eaten in the Middle East? Is it just a snack food? I mean. I really know so little about the culture around halva. Yeah. So halva means sweet. It's an Arabic word. And again, it comes from the word halawe, which means sweet. And it's been eaten for thousands of years. It's made by combining tahini and sugar. And one of the reasons that it's existed for such a long time and has such a long history is that pre-refrigeration, it was able to last. It's a shelf-stable product. So it sits in marketplaces all around the deserts of the the (laughs) Middle East and it doesn't go bad because... Does it weep though since it has so much sugar in it? It it weeps sesame oil. So it does, Ah, it gets oily, um, but it's, and that's also an an interesting question, the history of sesame seeds. Mm. And one of the reasons that that has such a long history and particularly around the Middle East is that it was one of the oils, the oil in the sesame seed, which was extracted and that's really the oil in tahini, it lasts and lasts and lasts. And people, you know, we put a shelf life on our product. A thousand and one nights, right? I know. I don't want. I don't want people to come to Cedar Mill and worry that their halva is thousands of years old and I'm still selling. <laughs> I can guarantee it's not. Um, but you know, we put one year as a shelf life. But the truth is, you could eat it for a long time. It just it doesn't go bad. 
Well, when I grew up, we did have it at home on occasion, <laughs> and there were only like two flavors. It was either plain or marbled, right? So it had a little swirl of chocolate in it. But one of the hallmarks of your company is that you have, what, 30, 40 different flavors of halva. Yes. Tell us some of your favorites and what the range is. I know my girlfriend was really thrilled with the marzipan halva, and yeah. I thought that was really inspiring. I love them. Yeah, that's but- one of my favorites. Um, <laughs> well, one thing that that really differentiates our product is, one, the range of flavors. So, yeah, we wanted to be very creative. We we wanted to take this product, and as you say, it's, you, you know, people in this city, New York, have been eating it for a while. It used to be sold on the Lower East Side of New York on push carts, and it does have this long history, but most people who recognize and eat have been eating halva with parents and grandparents really only ate it in two flavors so our first goal was let's let's breathe some new life into this product let's make what's old new again let's kind of make halva hip again (laughs) and part of that was let's just be playful and creative with the flavors why not you know it's like ice cream people used to eat ice cream in chocolate and vanilla maybe strawberry and then you know as time evolved, people were like, let's throw this into it. And, you know, Ben and Jerry's, I think, was one of the great examples of a great company that just wanted to make products really exciting and innovative. So we had a lot of fun pushing some boundaries with flavor combinations and we've and had some successes and some real fails. Oh, I'd love like, to hear both. So, so what are some of your best selling? And- so the best, some of the best sellers that I'm really excited about is the sea salt dark chocolate. I love that flavor. Mm. I love that combination of salty and sweet and texturally it, it looks beautiful. It's got a really big chocolate swirl through it and <laughs> flakes of sea salt over the top. I love, I love that flavor. Um, and other popular ones would be marzipan and there was a flavour that I loved. Um, we don't have it at the moment but white chocolate and lemon was a really mm. great. I love that idea of citrus being a bit sort of sour, the white chocolate being sweet, the tahini has a nuttiness even though it's not a nut. It has a complexity of or a depth of flavour and all of those things combined plus the texture of hover, it's, it's just a very unique, interesting taste experience so that was really fun but then you know we had we we've learned so some of the ones that did not work at all was we tried a goji berry halva and we tried chia seed halva we tried cranberry halva I I think sometimes trying to make it too healthy and too earnest and too too modern didn't work either. So. Right, but I can appreciate the attempt to go in that direction. And, of course, today everyone loves the variety and a little bit crazier the better. What about um, uh, candy ginger or other citrus? Do you oh, play around have, with that? We have, we have a ginger. That's one of my favorites. We have ginger at the moment. And um, for any of the listeners today, if we if you have any flavor combinations or suggestions, please write to us. We love hearing from our audience. Oh, what fun. That's really wonderful. And what about something about peanut butter? Did you ever play with that? We do have a crunchy peanut butter flavored halva. Um, so that's an interesting combo because people often taste halva and their first um, you know, first feeling is like, oh, this has this taste like peanuts or um, for those who grew up eating things like butterfingers, a lot of people tell us that their first bite of halva, it's like, oh, this is like eating the inside of a butterfinger. <laughs> well, you grew up in Australia. Did you have butterfingers? No, no. <laughs> I, did, I didn't know what a butterfinger was till I moved here, but I now know because half our customers tell me oh. that halva reminds them of the inside of a butterfinger. <laughs> there are also great health benefits, aren't there, to um Tahina yes. and maybe halva less so only because of the sugar, but maybe a little bit goes such a long way. You can satisfy your cravings. Yeah, very much. So there are a lot of health benefits to that. So tahini, I often call a superfood. We put it on our label because it really is a superfood. Tahini is a very good source of calcium, excellent source of calcium. Um, it's got some protein, vitamins, minerals, zinc, etc. But it's also a good fat. And I think these days people are look, they think about avocado and um, olive oil and fat is really not a dirty word. Not anymore, <laughs> anymore. at all. Um, there's we, we have been really lucky to have some incredible mentors and supporters of our brand. And one of them is Bobby Brown. And 
Bobby lives in New York, and she's been the makeup a, person, makeup, makeup, makeup guru, icon, <laughs> makeup icon, and just incredibly generous, you know, woman entrepreneur. And she came to our store a lot in the early days. And she once uh, did an event with us at Chelsea Market, and she once described Tahini as being like moisturizer for your insides. Oh, and oh, I, that's wonderful. I love that. <laughs> yeah, and you know, she's. You know, back to your question about starting a business and the book and there may be a recipe cookbook down there, but actually I think the story that I would like to share is more what it what it's like to start a business from scratch with no experience, being a mum, juggling that, being an immigrant and learning on the job. And I think we talk about it a lot, but there's really – there's no way to truly describe the highs of starting your own business mm. and also the lows. You know, it's I like to some somebody told me recently it's like climbing endless mountains and then descending into the valleys and you need to be able to be very comfortable in those valleys and and celebrate the moment of being at the top of the mountain and in every week month, I would tell you that I stand at the top of a mountain and I pinch mm. myself thinking how lucky I am to be doing what I'm doing and to be nourishing all of these people creatively, creatively and through food is is a privilege that I really do. I, I, I can't believe my luck that this is what I get to do every day. But I'm sure you would understand and relate to this. You know, you've had your own experiences of running businesses. It's it's an incredibly challenging experience as well, and the resilience required and that inner strength to deal with the valleys and to be able to know that it won't last forever has been a very big learning experience for me. This is so inspiring and truly, in a funny way, exactly the reason that I wanted to do this show so people could take an idea that seems really like an impossible dream and to make it happen. And and you're not kidding. You really had no experience no. and neither did your friends and you did it. Yeah. What are some of the biggest challenges right now for you in the company or just well, growing, growing pains maybe? Yeah, the, the biggest challenge and one of the things that I think we need to do more and more of, it's an endless task, is around educating our audience and our consumers about what it is we sell. So here in New York, we're lucky in the sense that a lot of people know what halva and tahini is. But when I go out into the rest of the country and I travel a lot, my sister actually lives in North Carolina. So I visit her in Charlotte a lot. And when I go down there and I tell her and her friends, oh, I've got this business and I sell halva and tahini, they just look at me with blank faces. Ah, so okay. I'm our, a New Yorker, so I sort of took that for granted. Oh, yes. not at, yeah, not at all. Even in New York, but particularly out of New York. So as I said, I'd really love for these products to become like people say that tahini is like the ketchup of the Middle East. You know, <laughs> in, the, in the US, people have a jar of ketchup and mustard and mayonnaise in their fridge or their pantry. Whereas in the Middle East, you open a pantry and you have a jar of tahini. Everyone has a jar of tahini in their pantry. So what are some of the recommendations for tahini? And then I'll tell you a very interesting um, discovery that I made 20 years ago. Okay. Shall I start with it? Yeah, okay. yeah please, please do. And it also relates to the fact that your products are vegan and, again, health benefits, but the vegan piece is interesting which also leads me to your ice cream. Is your ice cream vegan? We have one vegan and one not. Yeah, Fantastic. But both tahini flavored. Exactly, yeah. Wonderful. So 20 years ago, I was on the cover of Gourmet Magazine for a story about Hanukkah. And Hanukkah, one, two, three, because I'm known for cooking with three ingredients. So the request was to do a big, lavish holiday Hanukkah dinner um, where every recipe used just three ingredients. Oh, my God. <laughs> very that's, challenging. That's a very big challenge. And it was even more challenging because it, it had to be kosher. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to do something chocolate for dessert, and I'm thinking, what can I do? What can I do? And I made little uh, chocolate sesame cups. So instead of cream, which you would make chocolate and cream to make a ganache, I used tahina. And melted it together, and then I had plumped some little dried currants, 
And then I toss that together and put them in tiny little, those little fluted candy paper cups of course, and yeah. drizzled a little tahina on top. So it was gorgeous. I used a toothpick, let them harden. And I couldn't believe how delicious they were. And everyone who tried those, your comment about Butterfingers reminded me of this because people said it tasted just like a chunky candy bar, which was a, a, an American a little a candy when we were growing up. Oh, I love. I, I, <laughs> you I may love, use it. <laughs> no, I love that story. And um, you know, if you have a look at our website, we put up recipes, and one of the very first recipes we ever put on our site was I call it a tahini chocolate truffle, and I was Funny. equally gobsmacked at how, <laughs> at how that's the word. I, I think we said. <laughs> We said two ingredients for the truffles. It's just dark chocolate and tahini, and the tahini gives it the rich creaminess that you would get from cream or butter. Um, and then I sometimes sprinkle something crunchy on the top. You could sprinkle, again, a few salt flakes, salt flakes if you wanted to do the salty sweet, or I will some, you know, sprinkle some, you know, something crunchy. But it's, that is one of my favorite recipes, and I love – oh, cocoa. I often do use just dusted in yeah, beautiful – Yeah, like a tr- more traditional truffle. Yeah. So I what, love – just yes. by the way, whilst you're talking about Gourmet Magazine, um, it reminds me of one of, you know – one of the people that I admire, and I'm sure you too, um, Ruth Reichel, you know, the former editor of Gourmet Magazine. And amazingly, Ruth called us up about two weeks ago. And you can imagine, you know, little me who is like, <laughs> I really can't believe my luck sometimes when I'm sitting here in New York and I'm like, I get a call from Ruth Reichel of all people to say, I'm writing a piece for Town and Country magazine about Halva. Can I come and interview you? So I just sat there and pinched myself chatting to her about it. But what it, it kind of comes back to this thing about con- consumer education. So what we really need is for people, uh, publications and audiences to want to read about the history of Halva and what do I do with it? And so having Ruth come and speak to us about what Halva is and then to want to share that story with an audience, let's say the town and country audience that probably was not really (laughs) reading about Halva in the past. Um, But the fact that there's an interest in in this for, for me is really inspiring and, you know, keeps us going and keeps us growing. That is so exciting. In fact, I think Ruth will be coming on the show soon. But when she loves something, she is so supportive and is always ahead of the curve. Oh, you I know? Just, so this I is very, just, very exciting. I love her. I, I went home and I think I was smiling for days after, <laughs> after that conversation. I'm so curious. What are some of the other things you can do with halva? Can you fry it? I know you can crumble it and put it on things. Um, any other Yeah, I wouldn't fry secrets? it. I wouldn't fry it because I think you lose the texture. I think what halva is really special for is that melt-in-your-mouth, flaky, delicate, texture and that's also the difference often between good and bad halva um it's it should be really experiential in your mouth and it's one of those things that I struggle with with our packaging so I was telling you before we're trying to package the product and sell it into you know places that don't know what halva is and so it's been a real marketing challenge for us what what do we say on our package that tells people what it is and often I describe it by its texture before its taste. I often say, listen, it's made from sesame and sugar, but what really makes this something unique and special is the texture in your mouth. And but, how do you describe it? Um, I, I usually say it's a uh, flaky melt-in-your-mouth sesame confection or, mm. um, uh, you know, it's, it's a sesame fudge sometimes, mm. I, I tahini fudge. It's, I don't, but fudge isn't quite the right word right, because fudge is chewy. Has, halva has an ineffable quality because it also has a little bit of airiness to it, mm-hmm. right? So it's so hard to describe. Very. It's flaky and delicate. That's the way I like to describe it. And when you put a piece of halva in your mouth, it should just melt away. It shouldn't be chewy and it shouldn't be sandy. It should be a little bit moist and a little bit flaky and, yeah. Uh, But you asked what do people do with it and I love to encourage people to put uh, halva out on a cheese board as if they were entertaining guests with cheese and crackers and 
and fruit and nuts. I often would add a wedge of halva to a board with all of those things um, with a knife and several flavours. It's a great conversation starter for people who haven't tried it before just to have that knife and to say, hey, I'm going to try a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And it just, for, for me, it, it nurtures the conversation what as a well. fantastic idea. Yeah. Or I put it in brownies. I put it in cookies. I crumble it on yogurt. Actually, also, I love to add it to granola. I often will sprinkle or overnight oats. It's just Mm. that little pop of sweetness with something that you wouldn't otherwise need to be super sweet. Um, Again, I make oats for my kids. We call it porridge. I think Americans (laughs) call it overnight oats. But then to just have a little sprinkle of halva on the top, it then melts into the porridge or the oats and then it's sweet and unique. It's so difficult to come up with something truly new and exciting in the food world right now. Everything is available. Information is traveling so quickly. But Rachel, honestly, you, your partner's seed and mill is is the future. It's very exciting. (laughs) When we come back, I want to hear about your legacy recipe and what's most meaningful to you now. If you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at roseannegold.com. So while we were taking a little break, I got a chance to open some amazing halva from Rachel and Seed and Mill. One of the ones I love so much is cinnamon. It is fantastic. I love the cinnamon too, actually. Okay, so we'll take a, a minute break so I can try this. I think that crunchiness sound is it's sort fun. of cool as well. I'm opening the package. My mouth is watering. <laughs> and I'm about to bite into the cinnamon. <laughs> and for those of you who are listening, you should see Roseanne's face. <laughs> wow. So delicious. And you mentioned, and I'm going to try the chocolate now. Yeah, the sea salt dark chocolate is my favorite. The chocolate's really beautiful, 70% dark chocolate. It's got a beautiful swirl of chocolate through. Mm. And they're so beautiful. They look like um, fashion. <laughs> Somehow. Yeah. I mean, the intention, actually, that's a really interesting point because halva itself doesn't look, it's not as though it looks so beautiful in and of itself. What's beautiful is the experience and the way you wrap it and package it and explain it and storytell. Um, it, it is a food with a story. And I think when you know a little bit more about the product and why you're eating it, the experience is so much richer. I have to say, this chocolate halva is just one of the best things I've ever eaten, period. <laughs> you know what? I, I oh my don't gosh, this it's on the podcast. Good. I meant to bring you some tahini, but we're out of, mm. <laughs> we're completely out of stock of tahini. It's a disaster, but it's coming back next week. Well, you also have had so many really important chefs and food people say that your tahini is the best in the yeah, country. I know. We're really, it's we've, pretty been, exciting. we've been so lucky. Now I'm trying the raspberry. Never heard of that. But I have to say the chocolate was amazing. Mm. You know, I would serve that really at the end of any meal with just a coffee. Exactly, yeah. It's gorgeous. It's like a little petit four. After a meal, you have a sip of coffee and a little bite of halva. And as you say, a little bit goes a very long way. I think this is going to become the new truffle. Love it. (laughs) And I really do believe with your efforts, Rachel, that tahina will be in everyone's pantry all over America. It will happen the way sriracha. You know, 10 years ago, no one knew what that is. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of parallels with things like kombucha. Also, people didn't know what kombucha was a few years ago. Now you can't walk into a supermarket without the drinks fridge being full of kombucha or other things like matcha. There's a lot of flavors or kimchi is another great example. There are a lot of cultural foods that are loved overseas but are really starting to penetrate an American culture and and kitchen. Another way to think about it too, I agree with you, might be the uh, the new Nutella. 
Yes. Right? Yeah. Another thing to think about. Yeah. I, that actually is a huge goal. I would love to do a chocolate sesame spread because it's not free. It's It would be a fantastic competitor to Nutella and far more nutritious. I didn't say it accidentally. <laughs> it is for you to experiment with. I, I think it really would be a great idea. Yeah. The raspberry is also divine. And it's funny, in one of my books... I did a combination. I'm very, very interested in food and wine pairings and just food pairings in general. And again, for me, three is a magic number. So I put together really aged Parmesan, grapes, and dark chocolate as something to eat all together. And it's also a texture thing. It's not just a salty, sweet thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the texture of the Parmesan is a little halva-like, right? (laughs) So those were great tastes together. Anyway, this was a delight. Oh, my God. So delicious. I'm very happy. So let's talk about more food and recipes. And do you have a legacy recipe? I do. I have a favorite cake that I've been making for years and years and years. It's a recipe by uh, Claudia Rodin. She's a British cookbook author. Actually, I think she was born She's in Egypt. Egypt. Exactly, yes. yes. So she was born in Egypt. I think she lived in London for a long time. But she has this incredible orange and almond cake. Uh, I don't know if you know that recipe or you've made it, but you make it with... I've the, eaten it. You, yes. you make I never it made with it. The, with the entire orange. So you boil or cook up an orange skin, everything, and then you blend it and you put the entire fruit into the cake mm. and it's made with almond meal instead of flour. Um, and I've been making that for for years and years and years, so much so that every year my son asks for that cake for his birthday cake. So it's a very sentimental um, and meaningful recipe for me. How beautiful. And do you make any changes to it? Are you slipping in some halva? Or you know, <laughs> I mean, drizzled with tahina, maybe slightly absolutely. sweet, would be delicious. Yeah. I mean, I try to be honest. I do. I do try <laughs> Although to. Although I ruin perfection, right? No, no. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do try to put halva and tahini into everything these days, but I, <laughs> my family do object occasionally. But I did, you know, this recipe does sort of bring me to how I met you, actually. So I made this cake last week uh, for some new friends, Adam and Jeremy Kay, who are starting a new business called the Spare Food Company and we met through Jeremy and Adam but I made that cake for them and one of the things that occurred to me that I I hadn't thought about this because I've been making this cake forever but their mission is all about uh, food waste and making sure that we're using every part of the food that we can eat and so being able to make for them a cake with the whole orange I wasn't wasting the skin I wasn't wasting anything and it uses almonds and I didn't use shelled almonds I literally took shell you know skin and all I ground them myself and it really reminded me of also the mission there's a there's a whole social mission that food can deliver these days and so being able to Take a legacy recipe like that, make it for friends, think about the future of food and also where my values are around sustainability and making new friends. So meeting Adam and Jeremy and now meeting you, Roseanne, is, you know, it just brings me full circle around what it is that I do, why I love what I do. Well, this is the power of food. And I love the connection here. Uh, And also the idea of how a whole fruit can be utilized uh, Every every bit of it, and I think it encourages us to look at food differently. Very much so, yeah. So beautiful. Also, I'm thinking that this cake, going back to this idea of we're all travelers, has this cake followed you everywhere from Australia to London to Tel Aviv to it, Hong Kong and now to New York? Um, you know what? It really has. And <laughs> I, I had forgotten that Claudia herself, if she's ever listening, I'm going to try and find her. <laughs> but I love the fact that she was also born in Egypt, traveled to London. And I've discovered this cake recipe when I lived in London. I bought a cookbook. It wasn't hers, but it was in a, you know, a collection of other recipes. And this recipe was in that book. And this was back in 1990. And I've been making that cake since 1999 um, and probably make it three or four times a year. It's just my go-to recipe. In every country that I've lived, I have probably made that cake. (laughs) (laughs) That's very special. So we've already heard a lot about your values, your core values and sustainability, community, the power of food, the connection of food. So what are you working on now that relates to that? Or what's the most meaningful aspect of your business right now? That's a really hard question, but I 
Um, what What's really meaningful to me right now is to grow Cedar Mill. I want to grow it. I am looking for people to grow it with. Um, we are looking you know, for investors, but it's that's and that's what's keeping me up at night a little bit is that finding the right people to grow it with. I really want to protect this brand and make sure that it's true to its quality standards and its values and its mission and the community that we have around us and trying to pick the right people to do that with and stay true to what it is 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 a challenge and to make sure that I'm looking after my team I I love having mean being a manager and being able to provide income and learning experiences for other people is a wonderful privilege and I think kind of being a little bit more personal about it, what I'm also thrilled about is for my children, I'm trying to teach them that they can change their careers, they can learn. I mean, I've really, honestly, Roseanne, I've struggled a lot with Cedar Mill. It's been, uh, you know, in those early days, I found um, I found myself being so hard on myself about, oh, I don't know how to do this and I don't know how to do that and I'm doing this badly and I'm not great enough at this and it's four years down the track and watching my kids learn watching them watch me learn as I go and just conquer those mountains and be comfortable in those valleys but pick myself up and teaching them about their selves and their careers is that that brings me more joy than anything else with what I do. I have one more question and it's the question I ask all my guests. What does one woman kitchen mean to you? It means being with people and finding the joy in conversation and food. I, there's nothing better than just sitting around a table and not being so hard on, is the food perfect? Is Did this recipe work out the way I wanted it to work out? I, I'm trying not to think so much about, you know, did the meal taste great or was the meal memorable because of the people sitting around my kitchen with me and listening to them and learning from them and just sharing stories through food. Wow. (laughs) Thank you so much for that. I know women really are very hard on themselves, aren't they? And there's this sort of pursuit of perfection when in fact, um, it's really not about that. Yeah. Yeah, and being able to make other people feel better as well about how hard this experience is. I'm now sort of four years in and I feel much more equipped to mentor and help other people trying to start businesses. And, you know, the way Bobby Brown was just so generous, she sat with me and gave me all these business tips and tricks and she supported us through newsletters. And I often think, why, why, are, you, why are you being so kind? And she's got no agenda. She just, I think she really is just a generous person who's benefited from other people helping her and now she just wants to help others. And I think the expression is uh, pay it forward. Exactly, yeah. Um, but she recognized something in you. A little bit of herself, maybe, too. Maybe, I wish. (laughs) I hope so. But speaking of joy, Rachel, it has been such a joy to have you here with me today in my kitchen. So thanks to you, Rachel Simons, and to all of you listening to me and Rachel today on One Woman Kitchen. It's been such an honor to sit here, Roseanne. I've loved every minute. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Connect.